Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill, and in fact, today I'm your sole host, but I'm joined by a guest of honor here on the 235th episode of this podcast. My guest is Whit Stillman. So tell me about the book. It's a, it's a collection of writing on your films. Yes. Um, so this comes out of the Marseille Film Festival, which is called FID Marseille, Feed Marseille. And they did a cool thing. They did a retrospective of our films. They allowed me to do what they call a carte blanche for three films, picking films by other directors that I like. And they did this book in both French and English. And I guess the main part of it is a long interview that this wonderful guy, Cyril, who's connected to the festival, did. Then uh, they published a couple of old pieces of mine. Harvard Film Archive put together some archival material on the films, I guess on Metropolitan. And then they had a series of critics writing about it. I mean, <clears throat> it's cool to have this book. I read just a few pages at the very beginning, and already they're getting into that caricature stuff, like the way they demean and caricature preppies. Like they said at the, uh, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino and uh, Rick Linkletter, when they go to festivals, they look like this and with Stillman. I, I don't see any picture of him from the, from the Sundance Festival, but he must have been in a blazer and tie. And I never wear blazers. And that was before <laughs> my jacket and tie obsession, which actually comes uh, from admiring how sharply Scorsese dresses. Wow. And I think as you get older, it's kind of good to dress respectably. And another aspect of that is I, I think before I was directing films, I had the chance to um, have dinner with a critic, a festival director, a critic, and with John Landis. And I think it's when he was in London to promote... Um, American Werewolf. Yeah. And he said that he always wore a suit or jacket and tie when he was directing. And it's because Alfred Hitchcock told him that's what to do. So he crossed paths with Hitchcock at Universal. And Hitchcock said it's very important to, for a director to dress in a suit. And <clears throat> so actually in the shoot of, not at Suntans, but in the shoot of Metropolitan, I tried to wear this gray suit I had. And it's sort of indestru- one of those sort of cheap, indestructible suits. <clears throat> and... Um, he really helped us out because we were totally low budget, um, seat of the pants production. And we get in trouble with people like the managers of buildings and, um, and they want to stop our shoot in front of their building, which they have no right to do. We had permission to be on the street and they, they, they we're not entering their building. They have, they have no rights really. And, but the guy was trying to stop us anyway and um, be able to talk to him in my suit. And also, I knew someone in the administration of that real estate company. So I actually knew someone who worked with his boss. And so that's the one time I impressed the crew when uh, suddenly he changed his tone completely because I'd called up the, my contact in Douglas Elliman and had them call 
the, this um, building superintendent. Hey, that sounds like the first day you really became a professional, professional director to me. That <laughs> That's more a producer hat, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. A producer director. Um, now, you talked about the, you know, kind of obscene comparisons to the other uh, 90s filmmakers at the festivals that people are making. And I find it interesting that the 1990s was a time for American cinema that was kind of this breeding ground for new American, quote unquote, independent films. Some were just lower budget studio films, some were truly independent. But to see you lumped in with those filmmakers is strange to me because your approach in Metropolitan is so different than, say, you know, Reservoir Dogs, Citizen Ruth, uh, Slacker, or Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. So how did it feel when you were in these critical circles being compared to these other filmmakers with kind of very different aims with their filmmaking? Well, the comparisons weren't really there at the start because they came a little later. Um, I mean, I think the really cool period, I think, for me, were the 80s. And in a sense, I come out of the 80s because that's when we were doing Metropolitan. Um, I guess we started it in 88, shot in 89. Um, and sort of by happenstance, uh, it was shown in Sundance in January 1990. But um, the first showing was in September of 89 at the Independent Feature Market in New York. Um, and there were films in that decade that really impressed me and were helpful to to me and the collaborators in making the film. So the big revelation was John Sayles' Return of the Sokolka 7. And then great inspiration um, was um, Jim Jarmer's Stranger Than Paradise, um, there was hitting in Cannes, I think it was in the director's fortnight, when I was there still selling Spanish films, and that, I just love the film. I, it's still one of my favorite films, because it's, considering the economy of means, um, it's, and, and there's something appealing about obsessiveness, um, and, and, and it's, it's a fascinating thing, and it's a wonderful success, and real inspiration of what can be done. I was also greatly influenced by the Spanish directors who I was working with trying to sell their films. So Fernando Colomo started in the late 70s making these very low budget films about life in Madrid. The Madrid School of Comedy was called and he made a film in 83 in New York uh, that I got to help on and appear in. So I sort of saw how a low budget film could be done. And the same um, year, same summer, I got to have a pretty big part in another Spanish director's film, Fernando Treba, who'd done a wonderful small film called Opera Prima. It was a great comedy and a huge hit that I got to sell. And I was on his second film, Sal Gorda, Bad Taste, and really got to be around the shoot because as the least important person in the cast and someone he sort of controlled as I was supposed to be a sales agent, um, he just put me... Um, kept me in Madrid, I had a place to stay, and um, I got to see the whole shoot. And I, that's when I decided to shift from uh, writing the Barcelona script to, to work in something that would be done in my hometown of New York and really small, which is metropolitan. So your time in Spain is so interesting to me, uh, learning this, you know, almost a foreign market because you were selling these Spanish films. Was it back to American television, Spanish language television? Well, the original idea, I'd heard about this new Spanish language pay TV um, network in the States called Galavision. And um, I 
read the variety special, the first variety special issue on Spain. It was enormous. I, I bought it before my flight over to, to Madrid. I was going over to get married, and we were going to stop in Madrid for a couple of nights, and there's a dinner party um, being given for us. And so I read this issue three times in the plane, really, it's really well done by the variety reporter in, in Madrid who greatly influenced my, my life at that period. His name was Peter Besas. And um, at this dinner party, it turns out there were these Spanish um, directors and producers. And I said, you know, there's this thing happening in America, Galavision, and they're going to be looking for Spanish language product, and maybe uh, I could help you sell it to them. And then um, the Montreal Film Festival is trying to foment a market. And if you came up to the festival, they'd give you an office um, to sell films out of that. And the people I met there said, oh, you don't just sell films to to North America for Canada and uh, the United States. You, If you're doing foreign sales, you sell for the whole world. <clears throat> I mean, I was operating in such a low budget just with my own resources that my idea with this free room for an office was that we could uh, sleep in the office. Yeah. And it's really awkward, but but that's what we did. I mean, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. What was your experience like acting in Spanish language films? I know you had small parts. You said one more prominent part in a movie. And, you know, it's always been a fascination of mine, uh, especially in this is a completely different cinema. But in Hong Kong films, there's always a, a British character, an English speaking character, you know, kind of obligatory uh, English character. And I wanted to know what that was like just being in front of the camera in a film that's being made in another language because frankly when I look at your films the dialogue is so in, like you have a greater control of the English language than most who write dialogue and so I just was wondering what the experience of working in another language was like well I'm really glad that I'm not an actor um, doing that in one of my films because <laughs> um, I don't I'm not really precise in in the script really and um, uh, in a way it's liberating um, so the sort of idea is they, they do that in Spanish films too. They have a lot of sort of American characters and it's pretty broad and not very flattering. And sometimes they get people who really like, are these really Americans or are they <laughs> pretending to be Americans? And so it was a good hire, I think, from the point of view as the director, rather than going through the trouble and expense of having a cast director in Los Angeles and looking at a lot of people and dealing with agents, they could just say, you know, wit, um, this is the schedule show up. And, um, I guess it was liberating speaking. It's sort of it's sort of comical for them. It adds a level of comedy because also I learned Spanish in Mexico and I have a lot of Mexicanisms that they find funny. This American saying things like "ahorita," and um, and so it's kind of ridiculous. What I call it is the bobo americano, the silly American, and um, and uh, it was it was a really good experience. And then. Uh, the good sign for my Spanish acting career is that Fernando Treba had me back for another part and it flew me down to Medellin, Colombia to be in his uh, one of his more recent films. If a director repeats with you, that's a good sign. Um, that was in uh, the spring of 19. El olvido que seremos, or forgotten we'll be, and in America they called it Memories of My Father. It was released here... Um, by Cohen Media. Oh, okay, great. Cohen Media has done a lot of good stuff. 
Um, switching gears, talking about your approach to filmmaking, uh, just through watching your films, I would consider you something of a classicist, uh, at least indebted to the classical Hollywood films and the films of the 1930s. And I've seen you talk about the films of the 1930s on Twitter and other outlets before. And uh, do you feel that there's some sort of like responsibility to uphold the classic films to people uh, through your own work in a way? Well, I think it's wonderful that more people aren't using those tools. So it's a bit of a market advantage, I think, our films have because the cinema tools that they invented at the beginning of sound cinema, sort of from 28 to, to 42, um, are really marvelous. Uh, Absolutely. It's really marvelous technique. And um, it's it's amazing how people don't don't use that. And there's this whole culture that I find absurd of, um, of admiring continuous takes and certain kinds of sort of camera movements and doing interesting things with the camera. When I think the really fabulous thing of cinema is cutting and uh, the cut, and it, when I was trying to write a play at one point, it just so frustrated me that you had to kind of bring the actors on stage and off stage. You couldn't just cut, 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 cut. And um, I've... Actually, I'm actually doubling and tripling down on 30 cinema because I've been watching it more and more. I've all these years between films, and I just see things they do narratively and in 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 in, in the style of shooting and cutting that I just think is so good. Um, there's some films that are 70 minutes long, and there's so much interesting story yeah. in those 70 minutes. And I think it's kind of absurd the way people talk about the dialogue in our films, because if you go back to those films, there's tons of dialogue too. It's a normal thing. I think one of the most destructive things in cinema is this idea that it's a visual medium. Cinema is a visual medium, and if you tell your story only through images and without any words, you are sort of doing something superior, more artistic, more impressive than if you use words. And really, cinema is everything. Um, and, and as an example, you see someone, um, you see a man or a woman, and you're following them with a camera, and you make an opinion about them based on how they look. Once they open their mouth and say things, it just changes entirely your evaluation of them. And it's sort of what we learned in the beginning, that myth, I think, of the beginning of sound, when these actors that people had loved in silent films, when we heard, actually heard their voices, people stopped loving them. Um, I think that's exaggerated because a oh, lot of is. those actors who didn't survive into sound, it was really other factors affecting their careers. It wasn't that they had terrible voices necessarily. A lot of them had good voices. I would also argue that some of the great silent filmmakers, or really the great uh, silent filmmakers toward the end of the silent era transitioned into the sound era gracefully. I think that, you know, Chaplin's sound films, whether Monsieur Verdu or Limelight, are fantastic. You know, Lubitsch. Lubitsch, absolutely. I, mean. I had a kind of interesting experience with the Lubitsch film. I saw um, many years ago, my daughter was very young, and she and her friend wanted to go with us to the movies, and I saw it at one of the repertory houses in Paris that there's a Lubitsch film that I'd never heard of playing. I said, well, that'll be good. That's surefire. So we go in, and it's Lubitsch's Lady Windermere's fan. 
And um, we get there and I just realize, oh my gosh, it's a silent film and we're here with 13 year olds and they're not gonna wanna stay. And they, they're willing to stay. So we stayed and watched um, Lady Windermere's fan. And it's amazing. I mean, can you think of anything more talky than an than a Oscar Wilde story, yeah. an Oscar Wilde play? Directed by Ernst Lubitsch. <laughs> and it's so wonderful and so compelling. And of course, all those things have wonderful texts. Uh, these great writers, uh, Anita Luz, were, were writing the captions. And so uh, this whole myth of the visual. And now you see these things. And this, the, our industry is just so lazy because it's easier for agents and lawyers to negotiate single car credits and because of this idea of visual storytelling we have the most boring beginnings of films where you see some car in the countryside and then a single card credit and the car does this and single car credit and then just the ultimate pretentious thing there's some moment where the person gets out of the car and they get the director's card i mean it's just so tiresome and then that's so bad, they've gone to the other extreme of putting all the credits at the end, which is really annoying because you need the credits at the beginning of the film, you're still getting your popcorn. Yeah, I, I would say an ultimate ego stroke is no credits. End of the movie, the first credit is the directed by, definitely. Uh, I really, you know, having seen Last Days of Disco again recently, I forgot the way that you rolled out the credits on that, and I love it. And I also, you know, it goes back to the classics. Citizen Kane, the director credit, is on the same page as the cinematography credit. Oh, it is? Yeah. Which is one of the craziest things in cinema because it's, you know, defined as this auteurist text, of course. And it is, of course, it's Orson Welles's, you know, breakout masterpiece. But obviously, it's as much of a cinematography film and a script film as anything. That is great. Um, I didn't know I was a copycat. I thought it was more original <laughs> generally. I mean, it was generally the idea of the um, classic 30s credits yeah. where some great films have all the credits on three cards. Yeah. Um, it's so great. I mean, it, boom, boom, boom. There it is. Especially the faster early 30s ones, the William Wellman pre-code films. I feel like I've never seen pacing like that again, and they're wonderful. They pack in so much story, like uh, Wild Boys of the Road and um, I've got to see Safe those. in Hell. I've got to see those. Some films I see at friends' houses at dinner, and then I don't stay long enough to see the second half. So mm -hmm. when I saw that way, that it was, I thought it was just fantastic. The beginning was called Five Star Final. I haven't seen that one. And uh, one thing I find, another film I find fascinating is Double Harness. It comes out of those films that Marion Cooper had. They were sort of lost films from RKO. And a very interesting film is um, The Bad Sister, um, and it turns out it's based on Booth Tarkington's The Flirt. And um, it has a supporting player. I think it's 1932. It has Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis as supporting characters. And um, I mean, it's not wonderful filmmaking, but it's interesting storytelling. Um, but there's some films from like Public Enemy. They're just incredibly good cinema. Very early, 31 or 32. Yeah, the credit gets me in trouble with the guilds. Uh, I always have to fight about that. I think the, uh, I can't remember if it's the Director's Guild or the Writer's Guild that was causing me problems in the last days of disco credits. And because our, our thing is to put the cinematographer and the editor on the same card as the mm -hmm. writer-director. Um, because I think you really, when you make a film, you really do feel close to those guys. Uh, and um, 
it's a really, really close relationship and you're really grateful to them, uh, for working on it with you. And, um, so that way we get to have really the editor, the cinematographer, the writer, the producer, and the, and the director on the same card. And with the director's skill, the fact that the strobe, they said, well, if the strobe, I can't remember if they saw what we did or if they suggested if the strobe hit the director credit last, it would be okay. But we had to really fight to get that. Getting back to seeing Last Days of Disco with a crowd the other night, how do you feel about retrospective screenings of your work, you know, beyond, of course, the respect that an audience and programs or programmers are paying you? Uh, because, you know, the, the trilogy of comedies from the 90s have been cemented as something of classics of the era in film. And, I mean, do you have enough distance to see it as such? Is there something strange about seeing your own films 25, 30 years later with a crowd who's seeing them as classics? Well, it's been great, uh, these screenings this uh, past week and earlier um, at Marseille. It's fantastic because it's sort of the reward, it's sort of the dessert for all the slings and arrows of typical fortune. Um, so um, we had wonderful screenings to the Metrograph on Sunday, this fabulous screening um, in Bryn Mawr, on Thursday night, and it's great that finally people who like the films um, are there appreciating them. I was really surprised how many people hadn't seen the film before who were there. There was one kind of hostile question. I think there's one couple noses that I've joined. I don't think they really were dance people or comedy people, um, but that's okay. Uh, and sort of the character building thing is I happen to be on sites where they comment on films um, by accident, sort of, and uh, and also on Twitter, and there's still so many people who hate the films and mock <laughs> the films, and you know, very, very contemptuous, and definitely not getting the point at all. Um, you know, these people who sort of see things just to slate them, just mm -hmm. to find what the weakness is, or hate the sociology, or whatever. So it's good to have that to come down from, because I think it could be sort of paralyzing to write the next thing if people think oh this is so good this is such a good film and what's the next thing you write how's it good is that going to be because it always starts out being so awful in the script and then to see these people who just despise contempt uh, the other films it's 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 probably good to to see that yeah i guess you can't have all positivity or uh, you might get too big of an ego there uh which i don't see happening for you you've been very <laughs> nice and humble with me here um i have a question about contemporary cinema uh first of all to get into this you switched over to shooting digital for your last two films uh damsels in distress and love and french and also the the, and the pilot Amazon. yeah go ahead sorry did i ever send you that uh, no, I wasn't able to I get can a look send at you that. A link. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. But uh, I wanted to ask about the advantages of digital cinematography and how you're using a new cinema tool to still, you know, use the classic uh, formal tools and what you know new opportunities it brings you behind the camera. I mean, I, I love it. I love the digital cameras we've had a chance to work with. So. We started with sort of a higher level red in the, um, I guess we were shooting in 2010 um, with Damsels uh, and the uh, cinematographer had his own um, 
camera and uh, he was doing crazy things with it. They were really good. He loved backlighting and he loved taking chances and overexposing. And we have just some glorious shots with those girls walking and talking and being struck by sunlight. Um, of course, some people hate that and they criticize us for it, but I think it's, it's cool what he did. Um, that was just a great experience. And also you can see it. You immediately you know what you're getting um there's just so many advantages to um to digital you can shoot raw and then you have huge freedom of what you do with it afterwards um you can reframe things you can do push-ins and movements and it's it's wonderful and then the same thing with uh love and friendship a different camera a different cinematographer um and and the um the, sh the shoot cosmopolitans in paris different camera, different cinematographer. Um, <clears throat> Damsels was the crossover. So we did the color correction digitally, preparing a DCP, but Sony needed, Sony Classics needed release prints too. So we did a film out and, and uh, color correction at Technicolor in New York, and it was fantastic to be able to color correct a second time, so he sort of had the color correction of the digital, and then a genius doing color correction on film, and now they have machines that they really can show you what it's going to look like, and um, <clears throat> it came out looking really beautiful on film, I have to say, and then um, I think at the wonderful Cine Family uh, in, in, in its glory days, they showed it, and um, the projectionist had come over from the arc light and she said, so, so Sony had two premier prints um, struck from the original negative and they sent them the premier print for the screening. And the woman who had been projectionist, the arc light and had watched it digitally, she said, I just can't believe how beautiful this is on film. It's just remarkable. And uh, she made me realize, you know, that difference in quality. The thing is, the reality though is that those were just um, prints screened three times. Um, the actual prints that people saw were some of the worst things ever shown in a cinema. I think, you know, all these companies were going out of business, they were saving costs, and I was supposed to approve the release prints from, um, from Technicolor, and I said, well, what is this? Why does it look this way? Why is there this clicking? Why is it? And I had friends call me up saying, I can't believe how terrible the film looks. Uh, and so, um, and all my experiences, I had so many bad experiences with film on all, all the shoots, I guess except for disco where we had a lot more money. Um, but in both Barcelona and Metropolitan, there are just huge, huge problems shooting and editing on film. And I think people are forgetting all the bad things about film production. So I have to say, you know, seeing some of these prints, um, 35 prints, yeah, they they do look great, but um, over, since we can't really do use that anymore, um, I think it's good appreciating and trying to make digital as good as it can be. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think there's an easy way to complain about digital projection and cinematography, but when it's in the right hands, it's really special. It's It's a really special new tool, and I feel like that 
you know, perhaps the factory line studio digital cinematographers that shoot TV shows and your standard fare uh, superhero movies and whatnot don't really uh, take advantage of digital the way that filmmakers with that in mind would. Well, I think the great thing is that the projection is pretty standardized. So with film, I mean, take the um, first weekend of Metropolitan in, in New York, one of the actors went on Saturday night and he said, um, did you take out the scene where we find out that Audrey read Tom's letters? And I said, no. And he said, well, that scene was not in the, in the movie, screening at the Paris Cinema on the second day of release. So the Saturday night or, you know, the second weekend day, I'm not sure if we opened on a Wednesday or a Friday because they used to vary it. And uh, we we called up and, you know, and they they denied there was anything wrong. They denied that. Then finally they confessed that the um, Paris Cinema, because it's the most comfortable, prestigious place in New York, get gets the sinecure of the oldest, most veteran projectionist. They had a real old-timer and kind of a lazy old-timer. Um, and he had cut, somehow the print had cut and had chewed up part of that scene. So it's not to report it because it's kind of a real demerit to do that. He um, cut out the whole scene and just spliced it together. And apparently it was a big deal for the projectionist union because first he did this without saying so and then he lied about it yeah. when they asked him. And so we had to kind of run up a new reel for the Paris, but it meant that like for for a lot of the weekend, a big part of the story um, wasn't there. Maybe that's why people like the film so much that weekend. <laughs> One thing I found out at a premiere of Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men, a lot of us, it's really hard to like a film at a premiere because mm-hmm. it's so artificial and all the people speak before it and... It's really uncomfortable. You can't really relax into the film. So it's really unfair to judge a film based on your impressions. But I think a lot of us didn't love it that much. And there were two women who were incredibly enthusiastic about it at the dinner afterwards. And I was talking to them about it. Turns out both of them had gotten there late and they hadn't seen the scene where you see the crime. And so the film actually was much better. (laughs) Yeah. Without the crime. And someone, Kastorok had all these great films, all these hits, and then they started having films that were less good. And someone said to me, yeah, there's something happened at Kastorok where they decided you had to explain everything in the film. You had to explain everything for the audience. And they, the films became less good. And it's also my experience uh, with studios that once you get into the mall of having people with questionnaires, you always get some people in the audience say, well, whatever happened to Tom? What happened to the Tom character? And the Tom character in Disco is the Robert Sean Leonard character. And that's kind of a misdirect because, oh, but Robert Sean Leonard's in this film. You think he's going to be like the big character. And then he isn't, <clears throat> which is something I kind of love doing. And it's not important what happens to Tom. But the studio people were saying, yeah. I, I was quoting that from the cards as like a ridiculous thing. Yeah. Someone was saying, and then the studio said, yeah, what does happen to Tom? 
Well, Tom's a jerk. We see that he's a jerk. We're not going to see him anymore. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, no, the the studios giving o- obligatory notes like that is always a great source of stories. Like uh, in Contempt, I remember, you know, remembering this because of the Bridget Bardot poster up there. But I know that the, the introductory nudity scene was added uh, after the initial shoot because the producers were frustrated at the lack of sexualizing of Bridget Bardot. And so that was a very spiteful scene being added in. And does, it, does it work? That scene? Yeah. I don't know. What do, what do you think about that scene from Contempt? I don't know. Oh, Godard's Contempt. It's uh, quite good, but it's uh, that scene is very alienating. I saw it with a film school audience that was audibly uh, uncomfortable because of it. Actually, I've watched Godard films with women, and mm-hmm. I find it very uncomfortable. That a lot of stuff from the 60s that people thought was funny just doesn't play well at all. Yeah. Really doesn't play. So... A film I was always fascinated by um, because I hadn't seen it. I just had the Grove Press edition of the script from my cinephile brother's collection. It was the Grove Press edition of Masculin Femina. Mm-hmm. And it was cool with all the pictures of Jean-Pierre Léod. And uh, it's sort of still photographs in the script. And it was really you know, fascinating to read. But then watching it, um, it's really... He's sort of harassing her all the time. Yeah, it's not one of my favorite '60s. Guitar and also, films. there's the there's the bad fake American stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like whenever Godard invokes like Bob Dylan or something like that, like I know Bob Dylan is invoked in dialogue in that movie, and his his sneering stuff toward Americans in the '60s is not very fun. Yeah, there's very bad stuff about Americans in that. I mean, he's his his Marxism, of course, shows. Claire Denis was quite nice about the Americans in uh, in her film. Um, he's kind of a good guy. He's a, he's a character, but he's a nice character. Was that Claire Denis' U.S. Go Home? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really like yeah, that the, film. The American guy is, is perfectly gentlemanly and nice. Yeah, it's Vincent Gallo, right? Yeah. Yeah, have you ever uh, met Vincent Gallo? I don't think so. I feel like that would be, it's a very strange uh, difference in energies, but I feel like, uh, you know, that would be a very interesting meeting. Uh, one last question before we go, or maybe two, but firstly, your work with Chris Eichmann is one of my favorites between an actor and a director. And, um, where, where did you find him? What was the origin of your collaborations together? I mean, it's cool that Chris Eichmann essentially selected himself to be the lead in Metropolitan. We had a, um, really lucky to have, um, the, um, the girlfriend of one of the cartoonist artists who I represented in the cartoonist agency um, was working as assistant in casting and told us what, what to do. Um, advertising backstage, get a good rehearsal space, make the film sound good. We had 300 people who showed up on a Saturday morning to audition for um, Metropolitan. And um, I know that the first people to show up were heavily represented in the final cast because half of them were in the callbacks from that day. And we only had callbacks from among the first 50 people because after that we were so overwhelmed by the number of people, we stopped having callbacks on the same morning. And um, Chris Eigeman said he put up the sign-up sheet. So when there are tons of people who show up for something, they put up a sign-up sheet and then 
can kind of go back and see when their place will come. They'll see where, where the casting has gotten to. And so he must have been the first person there. And, and he was absolutely great. Um, but I thought he's a really great actor, but he's kind of a dramatic actor. He could do Shakespeare. Can he do comedy? Can he do quick silver comedy? And then this guy showed up, this amazing guy, Will Kemp, really handsome, really cool, really intimidating, scary guy. He's actually a sweet guy, but he seemed intimidating. And um, I said, maybe, you know, he really seems to be Nick Smith. I mean, he's actual Nick Smith. He's not just having to act Nick Smith. And there were all these problems about he had really long hair and he didn't want to cut it and, and all these things. And he, we did a few early scenes with him and Ed Clements. And he's just a huge guy, really towering. And it was a really cold night in the streets of New York. And um, Ed Clements was cold and chattering. And it was just... Um, it was just so incongruous, this huge guy and, and little skinny Ed Clements. Um, the uh, line producer, the wonderful guy, Brian Greenbaum, when we were going through the dailies that Christine Vachon helped us put together, he sang the song from um, Pinocchio, Oh, It's an Actor's Life for Me with the Wolf with the Top Hat with Pinocchio. That's exactly <laughs> what it looked like. It looked like the wolf and Pinocchio. It was just impossible. So, so it was just impossible casting, and um, and I sort of realized that the will was something else. He wasn't Nick Smith, and the cool thing was, uh, I think Brian said, you know, he'd be perfect as uh, Von Sloniker. So I called him and said, you know, it's a really good part, um, and it was a good part for him, and he got a lot of uh, parts out of it. Yeah, I mean, his <clears throat> roles for you are, yeah, some of my favorite comedic performances. Um, one last note on a contemporary film, and this is, you know, I just have to know for my own sake and keep it, knowing what you may or may not keep up with these days. Have you seen the latest film from Woody Allen, um, Rifkin's Festival? Did you get a chance to see that? Yeah. Did you like it? I was really jealous of, um, I'm not jealous of him anymore. Um, I was really jealous of Doug McGrath getting that part. I said, I could have played that. <laughs> Poor Doug McGrath. I mean, such a classy guy. And he just had a wonderful one-man show when he died. Um, um, I think it was a one-man show. It was, a, it was some theatrical production. Um, it's a show, show, I know so many sort of cool people who died the same year, and it wasn't COVID. It was who knows what. Um, yeah, I thought Rifkin's festival had redeeming qualities. Um, some Woody films made me really angry during a period when he was taking all the foreign money and when I'd show up they'd say we're not giving money to Americans anymore um, so I didn't like that and I didn't think the heart of some films like Celebrity and what's it called Cassandra's Crossing Cassandra's Dream Cassandra's Dream I don't think the heart of the films was in the right place um, but I think Rifkin's festival is sort of inoffensive and I think there's certain aspects of it are good so I think the foreign leads are wonderful foreign female lead and the foreign male lead are wonderful and i think it's one of his best uses of film or dream sequences some of those i find really annoying and bad so i liked midnight in paris less than other people and i particularly did not like his fantasy literary picasso etc hemingway scenes 
thought they're really bad. That felt like uh, someone doing um, like the Avengers or something like that for literary icons. It felt very on the nose and superficial. There were good things about that. Um, the sort of contemporary American satire was good. Mm-hmm. But um, I think in Rifkin's festival, his use of sort of parody art films really actually worked and was kind of interesting and good. So this whiny thing about Woody Allen and sneering at everything. And there's a wonderful scene in um, Rainy Day in New York mm-hmm. where the character runs into a school friend who's just such an awful idiot. It's really, really funny. And just to see that scene. Um, oh, are you talking about the scene where the school friend is making a movie? Uh, the, the friend has glasses on and he walks in on his film shoot. Yeah, I just remember it as a uh, a scene with the with a horrible school friend. Yes, and I can't remember every aspect of it. Um, and like they're really good actors. Um, the Mexican romantic lead actor, mm-hmm. uh, he's really good. Selena Gomez. No, the guy. Oh, I, I really thought, I meant the female. Lead. No, I thought she was really weak. Actually, oh really? Okay. I really think his projects have been hurt by casting. Uh, female pop vocalists. I mean, I think the really bad thing in um, in uh, his TV series was that casting, mm-hmm. and that character really just it just sank the second episode. So no one watched after that, and it's really a shame because the second episode of A Crisis in Six Scenes is just awful, awful, mm-hmm. awful. But after that, there's some really funny stuff and. Um, Elaine um, May was very good. And to see Elaine right? May and Woody Allen together is just a riot. Absolutely. I thought she was wonderful. She was that. really good. Yeah. So um, I think one of the great lines of that film said, well, then we'll just work on the guacamole. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. Whit Stillman, thank you so much for coming on Extended Clip. Um, this has been a blast. You've been very, you have been very generous with your time. Thanks for letting it be so extended. I hope you'll cut some stuff out. Of course. Okay. Yes. Thanks a lot. There's something really sexy about Scrooge McDuck. You really think so? love Uncle Scrooge. And that was episode 235 of Extended Clip. If you're new to the show, um, this is a podcast about cinema in all of its forms. You can look at our episode list to see previous topics of discussion. And uh, I hope you stick around, check out some more episodes. You can support us on Patreon. The link is going to be in the episode description. $5 a month gets you an extra episode every week. I'd like to thank Whit Stillman one more time. And on behalf of my co-hosts, JT White and Malcolm Baum, we will see you next time on the podcast to talk about Fan, the 2016 film starring Shah Rukh Khan. Goodbye, everybody.